Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, reading today from Charles Spurgeon's autobiography. And we begin today the final chapter in the first half of this uh, book, uh, this story. Uh, we're going to take two days to do this. So today and uh, those who are with me in real time, we'll finish this up on Monday. And then I think I'll take the rest of that week off as a little break give people a chance again to catch up, catch their breath, decide whether they want to go on to the next one or not. we got two more volumes to go through. And I'm not saying that you should dread that. I think it's a wonderful thing, but some may need to think about whether they want to make that commitment. But it's been good to have you. We get several hundred people every day who are going through this with me, and I tell you what, I'm enjoying it. If nobody else is, I tell you what, this is wonderful. Chapter uh, 59 it is. That's an L and an I and an X, right? 59. It's called Meeting in the Unfinished Tabernacle. Spurgeon says, I hope I shall never, while I live, cease to have another project always in hand. When one thing is done, we will do something else. If we've tried to make ministers more diligent in preaching, we must try to make the churches more earnest in praying. When we have built our new chapel, we must build something else. We must always have something in hand. If I have preached the gospel in England, it must be my privilege to preach it beyond the sea. And when I have preached it there, I must solicit a longer leave of absence that I may preach it in other countries and act as a missionary throughout the nations. Now that was preached in 1859 at the Music Hall. You remember what happened there. And then at a church meeting held in New Park Street Chapel, August 6, 1860, the following resolution was carried unanimously and enthusiastically. Quote, We hereby record our sincere thankfulness to Almighty God for the gracious providence which has preserved our pastor in foreign lands and for the loving kindness which has blessed his travels to the restoration of his health. It is our earnest prayer that for many years to come, our beloved pastor may be spared to labor among us in the power of the Spirit and with the smile of our Heavenly Father. It is no small joy to us to hear of the great acceptance which the printed sermons of our dear pastor have met with in France, Switzerland, Germany, Holland, Sweden, and the United States, and we equally rejoice that his personal presence among foreign churches has been attended with divine blessing. Especially are we glad that our pastor has been honored to occupy the pulpit of John Calvin in the venerable city of Geneva, and we devoutly pray that on that city the love of the great head of the church may ever rest and that all her ancient glory may be restored. Unto Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, be glory for the gracious success which has been with us even unto this day. And may it please our covenant God to remember us for good, even unto the end. Well, the first meeting in the tabernacle that he's been building here was held on Tuesday afternoon, August 21, 1860, while the building was still unfinished. The object of the gathering was twofold. First, to give thanks to God for the success which had thus far attended the enterprise, and next, 
to raise as much as possible of the amount required to open the sanctuary free from debt. 22,000 pounds had been received up to that time, but still more than 8,000 was needed. Hmm. Absley Pellet presided and heartily congratulated the congregation upon being present in the largest place of worship in Great Britain for the use of nonconformist Christians. Several representative speakers delivered interesting and sympathetic addresses, and Mr. Spurgeon gave a detailed description of the main building in which the meeting was being held, and of the smaller rooms connected with it. After a few introductory sentences referring to his ministerial brethren who were about to speak, the pastor said, quote, Now, my dear friends, you may perhaps guess the joy with which I stand before you today, but no man but myself can fathom its fullness, and I myself am quite unable to utter it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Much as I wish to express my gratitude, I must go at once to my business and first say a word about the structure itself. If the floor were to give way, our brethren who are now upon the platform would find themselves in the baptistry. <laughs> and if at any time those of them who have never been baptized wish to be immersed in obedience to their master's command, they will always find a willing servant in me. And the baptistry will be usually uncovered, as we are not ashamed to confess our belief in believers' baptism. On the occasion of the administration of the Lord's Supper, the table will also stand here, and there are steps on each side at the back of the platform by which the deacons will descend to distribute the memorials of the Savior's death. You see above us the pulpit or platform, which might hold a large number of persons. I cannot stand like a statue when I preach. I prefer a wide range both of thought and action. The pulpit will also be convenient for public meetings so that there will be no expense for erecting platforms. Concerning this vast chapel, I believe it is the most perfect triumph of acoustics that has ever been achieved. If it had been a failure at present, I should not have been at all disappointed because the walls have yet to be covered with matched boarding so that not a particle of brickwork is to be exposed. It being my theory that soft substances are very much the best for hearing, having proved in a great number of buildings that stone walls are the main creators of an echo, and having seen hangings put up to break the reverberation and to give the speaker a hope of being heard. Now I've got to stop right here and let you know that I'm looking through as I read a series of pictures, however, not very clear pictures, that are in the book, and I haven't told you this for a long time, but you can get this whole book online on a, a little hard drive that will be sent to you for a price, and you can find out the price of that by going to PuritanDownloads.com. That's the Stillwaters Revival books. Ask about the Puritan hard drive, and it's not just Scott Spurgeon, but every really good uh, work of the Puritans that have, has ever been written down, and a whole lot more. You need to check that out. Uh, when you get this book, though, and you, you bring it up on your computer, you'll see that the pictures, as I just said, are, are pretty dark. 
Uh, but I am looking at, a, at an auditorium here, and I'm looking at some windows, just kind of barely. I, sh I saw the pulpit as I was speaking. Moving on, it has been remarked by a great many friends as they entered that the building was not so large as they expected, and I was pleased to hear them say so, for it showed me that the structure did not appear huge and unsightly. To look very large, a building must be generally out of proportion, for when there is proportion, the idea of size is often lost. If you went down below, you would find the lecture hall, about the same area as our new Park Street Chapel, or rather larger, and the schoolroom, larger in its area than the venerable sanctuary in which my brother, Dr. Campbell, long preached the word. I mean the tabernacle uh, of Moorfields. I believe that four chapels, like the one at Moorfields, could be put into this building. Two resting on the basement would only just fill up the same area, and then there would be room for two more on the top of them. Now perhaps you may get some idea of the size of this tabernacle. With regard to the appearance of the structure, I have this much to say. I think it is highly creditable to the architect. The omission of the towers has deprived him of much of the effect which he hoped to produce by his design and is perhaps the reason why the roof seems to rise too much. But they'll never be erected, these towers, as long as I am here. I will have no ornament which has not a practical use, and I do not think those towers could have had any object except mere show. As for the front elevation, it is not surpassed by anything in London. The building has no extravagance about it, and yet, at the same time, it has no meanness. True, the roof rises to a very great height above the portico and does not present a very architectural appearance from the causeway, but we must recollect this. Those who only look at the tabernacle from the outside have not subscribed anything toward its erection and therefore cannot judge of its true beauty. The lecture hall beneath this platform is for our church meetings. It is rendered fully necessary as we have now more than 1,500 members. The schoolroom will contain, I should think, 1,500, if not 2,000 children. There are large classrooms which will be used on the Sabbath day for classes and on the weekdays for my students. I have no doubt my friend, Mr. Rogers, who has so long been my excellent helper in that work and to whom very much credit is due, will feel himself more comfortable when he has proper rooms in which all his young men can be taught in every branch necessary to give them a complete education for the ministry. <clears throat> There's a very fine room for the ladies' working meetings, which will also be available for a library, a place where the works of all our former pastors will be collected and preserved. For you must know that of old, our church has ever been prolific of good works in both senses of that term. We have the almost innumerable works of Keach. They were so many that it was difficult to find them all. The chap books, which used to be hawked about the country, printed from worm-worn type on bad brown paper and adorned with quaint illustrations, yet containing good sound theology, I have no doubt <coughs> interested the villagers and greatly impressed the public mind at the time. Then we have the ponderous tomes of Gill, uh, the tractates and hymns of Ripon, and the works of those who, since their day, have served us in the Lord. 
the pulpit of my glorious predecessor, Dr. Gill, will be brought here and placed in the vestry below that we may retain our ancient pedigree. It is said to have had a new bottom, and some of the four sides are new, and yet I affirm it still to be Dr. Gill's pulpit. I am as certain that it is so, so that as that I am the same man as I was seven years ago, though all the component parts of my body may have been changed in the meantime like that pulpit. And behind the upper platform, there are three spacious rooms. In the center is the minister's vestry. To the right and left are the rooms of the deacons and elders, the officers of the army on either side of the captain, so that they may be ready to go forward at the word of command. And then above them on the third story, there are three other excellent rooms to be used for tract and Bible depositories and for other schemes which we hope the church will undertake. I have thus tried to explain the structure of the building to you. I do not think that anything else remains to be said about it, except I draw your attention to the staircases by which you ascend to the galleries each gallery having a distinct entrance and staircase, so that there's no fear of any overcrowding. I will only say that a design was never carried out with more fidelity by any builder than this has been. There have been improvements made as we've gone on, but they've always been improvements to which, if they did not seem absolutely necessary, the builder has objected, lest he should have any extras. And when we have compelled him to make them, he has done them as cheaply as possible. He is a man of whom I am proud that he is at once a member of the church, a member of the building committee, and the builder of this house of God. Mr. Higgs, besides being a most generous donor, gives us in solid brick and stone far more than he has done in cash. If I had 10,000 buildings to erect, I would never look to anybody else. I would stick to my first love, for he has been faithful and true. I must pass on to another point, namely the present position of this project. We've pushed beyond the era of objection to it. Now, those very wise friends, and they were very wise, who said the building ought not to be built, it would be too big, cannot undo it, the only thing they can do is to help us through with it, for so much money has been spent already that we cannot propose to pull it down, however absurd the structure may be. Some of our brethren have asked, when Mr. Spurgeon dies, who will take his place? As if God could not raise up servants when he would, or as if we ought to neglect our present duty because of something which may happen in 50 years' time. You say, perhaps, you give yourself a long lease, 50 years. I don't know why I should not have it. It may come to pass, and will, if the Lord has so ordained. Dr. Gill was chosen pastor of this church when he was 22, and he was more than 50 years its minister. Dr. Rippon was chosen at the age of 20. He was pastor for 63 years. I was 19 when I was invited and is it not possible that I also, by divine grace, may serve my generation for a long period of time? At any rate, when I am proposing to commence a plan, I never think about whether I shall live to see it finished, for I am certain that if it is God's plan, he will surely finish it, even if I should have to leave the work undone. 
I said just now that this project has gone beyond the era of objections. It has even passed beyond the realm of difficulties. We've had many difficulties, but far more providences. The ground was as much given to us by God as if he had sent an angel to clear it for us. The money, too, has been given, even beyond our hopes. And we have had it from quarters where we should at least have expected it. All the Christian churches have contributed their portion, and almost all the ends of the earth have sent their offerings. From India, Australia, America, and everywhere have we received something from God's people to help us in this work. We hope now we shall go on even to the end of it without feeling any diminution of our joy. And now I come to my closing remark, which is that we earnestly desire to open this place without a farthing of debt upon it. Now you've heard that sentence again and again. Let me repeat it. And I pray that our brethren here who have the command of the public press, will repeat it again and again for me. It is not because a small debt would weigh upon this church too much. We are not afraid of that. It is just this. We think it will tell well for the whole body of believers who rely upon the voluntary principle if this tabernacle is completed without a loan or a debt. Our new place of worship has been spoken of in the House of Commons. It has been mentioned in the House of Lords. And as everybody happens to know of it, since it stands so conspicuously, we want to do our utmost. And we ask our brethren to give us their help that this forefront of nonconformity, for the time being, may have about it no failure, no defeat to which anyone can point and say, ah, your voluntarism failed to carry the project through. I believe in the might of the voluntary principle. I believe it to be perfectly irresistible in proportion to the power of God's Spirit in the hearts of those who exercise it. When the Spirit of God is absent and the church is at a low ebb, the voluntary principle has little or no power. And then it becomes a question with many carnal wise men whether they shall not look to Egypt for help and stay themselves on horses. But when the Spirit of God is shed abroad and men's hearts are in the right state, we find the voluntary principle equal to every need of the church. Whenever I see members of any denomination turn aside and begin to take so much as a single halfpenny from the hand of the state, I think they do not believe in their God as they ought, and that the Spirit of God is not with them in all his divine power. Only give us a minister preaching Christ and a people who will serve their God, and feel it to be their pleasure to devote themselves and their substance to his cause, and nothing is impossible. I ask you to prove this to all men, and I appeal to you to help us in the effort to raise that remnant of 8,000 pounds. I believe we shall have a good and hearty response, and that on the day of opening we shall see this place filled with a vast multitude who will complete the work and leave not a shilling unpaid. We pledge ourselves to the Christian public that they shall be no losers by us. While this building has been going on, we have done as much as any church for all other agencies, as much as it was possible for us to do. We hope to help other places by first giving to our young men an education when God has called them to the ministry and afterwards helping them when they are settled. 
We wish our church to become a fruitful mother of children and pray that God may make this tabernacle a center from which rays of truth and light and glory may radiate to dispel the darkness of the land. We will not be an idle church. We do not ask to have our load taken away, that we may eat and drink and play, but only that we may go straight on to do God's work. Of all things, I do abhor a debt. I shall feel like a a guilty, sneaking sinner if I come here with even a hundred pounds debt upon the building. Oh, no man, anything will stare me in the face whenever I try to address you. I do not believe that Scripture warrants any man in getting into debt. It may stimulate the people to raise more money. But after all, attention to the simple word of God is infinitely better than looking at the end which may be attained by the slightest deviation from it. Let us not owe a farthing to any living soul. And when we come here for the opening services, let us find that all has been paid. In the course of the meeting, Mr. Spurgeon made other interesting remarks. After the address of the clergyman who had accepted his invitation to be present and who had spoken with great heartiness of the pastor and his work, Mr. Spurgeon further said, I thank my brother, the Reverend Hugh Allen, for coming here today. I know the opposition he has met with, and I believe he cares about as much for it as a bull does when a gnat settles on his horn. (laughs) He shall have my pulpit at any time he likes. I'm quite sure he will commit no offense by preaching in it. I licensed Exeter Hall as a place of dissenting worship a few years ago, and the record stands on the book yet. If it is a sin for a clergyman to preach in a licensed place, There are 100 clergymen who are great sinners, for about that number have since preached there. Dr. Campbell, having made some allusion to the name of the building, uh, then Mr. Spurgeon first stated that, that more than a million persons had contributed, chiefly in small sums, towards the erection of the tabernacle. And then he said, I am astonished at Dr. Campbell for not knowing that the word tabernacle involves a religious doctrine, namely that we have not come to the temple state here. We are now passing through the tabernacle state. We believe this building to be temporary and only meant for the time that we are in the wilderness without a visible king. Our prayer is thy kingdom come. We do firmly believe in the real and personal reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, for which we devoutly wait. That is the reason why our new house of prayer is called a tabernacle and not a temple. We have not here the king in person, the divine Solomon. Till he come, we will call it a tabernacle still. Dr. Campbell and I will never quarrel for any precedence. His is a most mighty pen. He may have the kingdom of the pen if he will let me keep some of the kingdom of the tongue. His pen is sharper and mightier than Ithuriel's spear. It has detected many of the toads of heresy and transformed them to their right shape. And I have no doubt it will find out a great many more yet. Mr. Spurgeon gave at this meeting a detailed and cheering account of the continental tour which he had recently enjoyed with Mrs. Spurgeon, Mr. Passmore, and another friend. The address was printed shortly afterwards. 
but it contains so much interesting autobiographical information relating to the period that at least a part of it must find a place here to make the record as complete as possible. And, I, and let me say here that I would not even read the fact that he went on a trip and saw stuff if he did not always connect it to something spiritual. Everything in his life had something to do with the kingdom of God. So let's follow him on a journey that he took around uh, Europe. The pastor said, I have been requested by two well-known and deservedly eminent publishers to print some notes of my journey to, on the continent, by which he means Europe. But I went there for rest and recreation, and I felt that this most sacred purpose could not be attained if I chained myself to the drudgery of book writing. My congregation would have been disappointed if I had come home as tired as I went, and I could have had no solid excuse for ceasing my daily preaching if I had not really rested my weary brain. I believe, moreover, that the narrative of my journey will be far more valuable to me as a fountain of fresh illustrations and suggestions than if I could pour it all into a book. Will it not be better to retain my pearl and let it glitter every now and then than to melt it into one small draft to, too shallow to satisfy the public thirst? Well, I went from St. Catherine's docks down the river accompanied by my well-beloved deacons and several of my friends. At Gravesend, they left me and my party with the kindest wishes and with many a prayer to God for our safety. The journey was rendered abundantly pleasant by the evening which we spent together in prayer and fellowship before our departure. I never heard such kind words and such loving prayers uttered concerning any human being as I heard that night concerning myself. There was nothing like fulsome flattery, all the glory was given to God. But every brother invoked such choice blessings upon my head that I went away with a rich cargo of joy, knowing that a full wind of prayer was following behind. The captain of our vessel was from Essex, and as all Essex men have a high opinion of their countrymen, we soon found ourselves in full talk upon the excellences of our native country, county, I should say. Many were our anecdotes, and swiftly flew the time. Mine I have told so many times, I dare say you know them. Some of the captain's tales were new and original. I shall give you one, because it tends to illustrate the place in which we landed, Antwerp. That city is so full of images of the Virgin Mary that you cannot turn the corner of a street without seeing them sometimes under a canopy of many colors, arrayed in all manner of imitation jewelry and other times in neat little niches which seem to have been picked out of the wall for their special accommodation. Sometimes Mary is represented by an ugly black doll, other times by a, a decent, respectable statue. So many of these objects are there that the sailors may be excused for imagining every image which they see to be a Virgin Mary. One of them, who landed there, went to buy some tobacco. And uh, when he returned to the ship, his companion said, That's very good tobacco, Jack. Where'd you get it? Oh, he answered, You'll know the shop, for there's a, a Virgin Mary sitting over the door smoking a pipe. Well, I, I don't wonder at the man's blunder, for among so many idols, one may easily mistake a Turk and his turban for the Virgin and her crown. 
I am sure they think vastly more of her than of our Lord Jesus Christ. For though we saw many crucifixes and many representations of the Savior, yet even in their image work, it seemed to me that the Virgin Mary was cent per cent beyond the Lord Jesus Christ. It happened the very day we landed at Antwerp, and if I understand properly, that's in Belgium, that there was a grand procession just streaming in its full glory out of the cathedral, a fine and venerable building. Oh, there were priests in their robes, beetles resplendent in their livery, and a great number of men, uh, whom I suppose to be penitents, carrying huge candles, uh, certainly I should think two inches in diameter. These men walked two and two along the streets, whether that burning of the candles typified the consumption of their sins, the melting of their church, or the illumination of soul, which, which they so greatly needed, I do not know. There were also carried great lamps of silver or electroplate, very much like our own street lamps, only, of course, not quite so heavy. And these, too, when the sun was shining brightly and there was no need of the slightest artificial light, in all solemnity, the men marched along, not in the dark cathedral, but in the open streets, with these candles and lanterns blazing and shaming the sunlight. Someone told me they were taking the most blessed and comfortable sacrament to some sick people. But what the candles had to do with the sacrament, or the sacrament with the candles, or the people with the sacrament, I do not know. I noticed two little boys, very handsomely dressed, walking in the middle of the procession, throwing flowers and oak leaves before the priests as they walked, so that as they went along, their holy feet scarcely needed to touch the soil or to be hurt with the stones. The presence of those children, full of infantile joy, relieved the soul for a moment and bade us pray that our own little ones might take part in a nobler celebration when the Lord himself should come in the glory of his Father. Almost every house had, just before the window, a little place for holding a candle. And as soon as the inmates heard the procession coming along, the candles were lighted. I noticed that the moment it passed, the thrifty housewives blew out the lights, and so they saved their tallow if they did not uh, save their souls. I inquired and was informed, and I think on good authority, that even some of the Protestants in Antwerp burned these candles in front of their houses lest their trade should be hindered if they did not conform to the customs of the rest of the people. It's an unutterable disgrace to them if they do so. I would like to have seen Martin Luther with a candle before his door when the priests were passing, unless indeed he had burned the Pope's bull before their eyes. Uh, he would sooner have died than have paid respect to a baptized heathenism, a mass of idolatries and superstitions. Never did I feel my Protestant feelings boiling over so tremendously as in this city of idols, for I am not an outrageous Protestant generally, and I rejoice to confess that I feel sure there are some of God's people, even in the Romish church, as I shall have to show you by and by. But I did feel indignant, and when I saw the glory and worship which belonged to God alone, given to pictures and images of wood and stone, when I saw the pulpits magnificently carved, the gems set in the shrines, the costly marbles, the rich and rare paintings upon which a man might gaze for a day and see some new beauty in each face, I did not marvel 
that men were enchanted therewith. But when I saw the most flagrant violation of taste and of religion in their calvaries and cheap prints, my spirit was stirred within me. For I saw a people wholly given to idolatry. They seem as if they could not live without Mary the Virgin and without continually paying reverence and adoration to her. We journeyed from Antwerp to Brussels. I cannot say that Brussels greatly interested me. I do not care much for places in which there is nothing but fine buildings and museums. I'd much rather see an odd, old-fashioned city like Antwerp, with its sunny memories of Rubens, Quentin Matzies, and other princes in the realm of art. I think its singular houses, its quaint costumes, and its ancient streets will never die out of my memory. In Brussels, I heard a good sermon in a Romish church. The place was crowded with people, many of them standing, uh, though they might have had a seat for a halfpenny or a farthing. And I stood too, and the good priest, for I believe he is a good man, preached the Lord Jesus with all his might. He spoke of the love of Christ, so that I, a very poor hand at the French language, could fully understand him. And my heart kept beating within me as he told of the beauties of Christ and the preciousness of his blood and of his power to save the chief of sinners. He did not say, justification by faith, but he did say efficacy by the blood, which comes to very much the same thing. He did not tell us we were saved by grace and not by our works, but he did say that all the works of men were less than nothing when brought into competition with the blood of Christ, and that the blood of Jesus alone could save. True, there were objectionable sentences, as naturally there must be in a discourse delivered under such circumstances, but I could have gone to the preacher and have said to him, Brother, you've spoken the truth. And if I had been handling his text, I might have treated it in the same way that he did, if I could have done it as well. I was pleased to find my own opinion verified in his case that there are, even in the apostate church, some who cleave unto the Lord, some sparks of heavenly fire that flicker amidst the rubbish of old superstition, some lights that are not blown out, even by the strong wind of popery, but still cast a feeble gleam across the waters, sufficient to guide the soul to the rock Christ Jesus. I saw in that church a box for contributions for the Pope. <laughs> he will never grow rich with what I put into it. I've seen money boxes on the continent for different saints, Santa Clara, St. Francis, St. Dominic, another box for the Virgin, another for the poor. But I never could make out how the money got to the Virgin and to Dominic and to the rest of them. But I have a notion that if you were to discover how the money gets to the poor, you would find how it reaches uh, the saints. <laughs> we'll leave it right there today. We're about halfway through this final chapter. We'll be leaving Brussels and and going on to Waterloo and a whole bunch of other places as he uh, gets some rest, but he cannot rest from the Lord and his observation of things that are spiritual. Thank you so much for being here today. There are works of other great men of God on this website, a whole bunch of things about North Korea. We've got a study on the Quran and Muhammad and prophecy and through the Bible and commentaries. It's just so much, 20 years worth of work on this website. Please go check it out. 
If you want to know a little bit more about me personally, go to my Facebook account. That's just Bob Faulkner, F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. And at YouTube.com, just type in Bob from Hackberry House. You can recognize that. Click on my picture, and there you will have my videos that I'm putting together right now. Criesfromamongus.com is a blog site you might want to check out where I do writing. All right. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, Lord willing. We'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.